And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we ask that you send your spirit here as we're studying about the Holy Spirit this week and our minds will be enlightened, our hearts will be transformed. We will draw closer to you and understand your kingdom more fully and be effective witnesses for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in the uh, quarterly, The Holy Spirit and Spirituality, and the title is The Holy Spirit, the Word, and Prayer. And before we actually get into the lesson, I received an email this week from one of our online listeners, Kent Johnson, with, with an Ellen White quote that I'd never seen before, and I thought, well, I want to share this with you because I thought it had some really powerful insights. It's from Signs of the Times, April 28, 1890. It says, Satan deceives and corrupts the world and makes men believe that they are sinless and holy while sinning against God. Pause. How would he do that? Think that through. How could people be sinning against God while they think they're sinless and holy? Now, yeah, murderers, murderers typically don't think they're doing holy things, and rapists don't think they're doing holy things, and drug dealers don't think they're doing holy things. And most people, when they read that, they think that's the kind of thing. No, they're sinning against God while they think they're... Let's, let's see what unpacks in this paragraph. It's quite interesting. But in so doing, he is only carrying out his original work, Satan, in doing this. He has introduced no new arguments. He has created no new empire of darkness from which he draws supplies for the furtherance of his deceptions. What does this mean? It means the same exact thing that he did in heaven to deceive a third of the angels he is perpetuating here on earth. And sin, that was sin in the beginning, is sin today. And sin, the apostle declares, is transgression of the law. What law? How do you hear that? How could Satan get people to transgress God's law while they think they're actually holy and sinless and keeping God's law? How could he do that? Now listen to what comes next. Because that's the idea. They're sinning, but they don't think they are. How? Why? In these days, it is Satan's determined purpose to intensify sin by making it legal. In the children of disobedience. He is to reveal to the world... And to heaven, what the order and result of his government carried out according to his ideas of administration and law. His law. His legal approach. What's Satan doing? He's making sin a legal problem. A legal issue. Thus, righteousness becomes about legality. Legally being right. So we can keep on living out of harmony with God's design, but believe we're holy because we're keeping the rules. Isn't this profound? I mean, it's, it's amazing. This is, this is Christianity. He is working with secret yet intense zeal in both church and state to cause men to throw off all the restraint of God's law and to take a decided stand with him in the ranks of rebellion. But when his work is accomplished, the Lord will interpose and vindicate his honor as the supreme ruler of the universe. Now, there's incredible insight. This is exactly Satan's attack a legal view of God's law at replacing design law, God is creator, and his law is the protocols by which reality works, with laws that function no different than human beings. A list of rules that you have to coercively enforce with threats of punishment. Any examples then? I'm going to give you some examples of people who are living in violations of God's laws, but because they've made it legal, they're keeping the legal rules so they feel they're holy. Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees want to stone him. Why? Because they're keeping the legal regulations of what Sabbath observance is behaviorally that they've codified. And he's breaking those rules. And so they want to stone the son of righteousness who's acting in love to build up. They won't build up and help somebody because their hearts are selfish. Instead, they're keeping rules and they feel holy. 
eating a vegan diet while holding condemnation in the heart towards those who do not, judging them as being lost. There are people in this organization that go around promoting and trying to put guilt trips on people. If you're not a vegan, that Jesus can't come and you can't be translated to heaven if you don't eat a vegan diet. Claiming legal security and salvation by the legal application of the blood of Jesus and being declared righteous even though you're not, but not actually experiencing a change of heart. Not having the law written in the heart and mind. I'm secure because the payment's been made. But I haven't been changed. I haven't been reborn. I claim a legal rebirth, not a literal rebirth. This is going around feeling sinless and righteous because the blood of Jesus is covering my record book in heaven. Wow. I thought that was incredible. All right, Sabbath lesson, the memory text. Likewise, this is out of Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So some questions for us to go through. Now think about this. With whom does the Spirit intercede? He's interceding. With whom? For what purpose is the Spirit interceding? What's the necessity of the intercession what is the function the action of the spirit what's the spirit doing with intercession so i'm going to boil it down more specifically give you some choices is the spirit working to inform and educate god or to inform and educate us is the spirit working to convict god or to convict us Is the Spirit working to influence God or to influence us? Is the Spirit our representative to God or Christ's representative to us? Is the Spirit to take what Christ achieved and reproduce it in God or to reproduce it in us? Is the Spirit a translator who translates our thoughts to the Father so the Father can understand them? Otherwise, the Father would have no idea what we're trying to pray for. And with groans and utterances, translating it now, Father, this is what they really mean. I know you wouldn't get it, but here's what they're trying to say, which is what a lot of people think. Or is the Spirit working to enlighten us about God and God's purposes in our lives? Is the Spirit working to penetrate the dark cloud of misunderstanding in the mind of God or in our minds? Now, the point I'm making here, where is the Spirit interceding? In heaven with God or in our hearts and minds? Is that how you've always heard it? Get get your mind around that. How many years have you read that passage and had this vision of the Spirit interceding with the Father on our behalf? To make this point even more clear, the memory text that we just read was Romans 8, 26, and 27. Listen to what Paul says five, four verses later, starting in verse 31 of Romans 8. So we're right in the same thought train of the writer. This is what he says, Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who's for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, who? 
God, not also along with him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who chose? Notice, I mean, he's, he's saying this repetitively. Next sentence. It is God who justifies. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus paid the penalty and applies his blood to justify us in the record books in heaven with the Father's legal courtroom. That's what's taught in the legal view. No, it is God who justifies. What does justify mean? Sets right, makes right, puts right. What is wrong that needs putting right? Our heart attitude towards God, our distrust. The natural heart is enmity to God, against him, distrusting. And thus, when the heart is changed, Abraham trusted or had faith in God, and his faith or trust was recognized as Righteous, because the heart of distrust had been set right or changed or justified to a heart of trust. And who is it that's doing that? God. God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? The question is asked. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What's that word also mean? In addition to, along with, along with who? The Spirit, in verse 26, and the Father in the two verses here. So Paul is making the case that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all three are unified in their intercessions for you and for me. There is no place in Scripture that teaches one member of the Godhead intercedes with another member of the Godhead to influence them to our benefit. It's not in Scripture. That is the false law construct, the legal view that's infected Christianity. So if they're not, if they're all interceding for us, what are they doing? What is their intercession? Think that through. They're interceding. Intercession, what is it? Intervening, interceding, acting in intermediary role. How? Why? What are they doing? Three primary places. Where do we need to be interceded with? Three primary places. You find these in Scripture. Genesis 3, as soon as sin happened, God speaks to the serpent. And what does God say to the serpent? I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. And the serpent represents Satan and his kingdom. And the woman represents the church. And he will put enmity. In other words, is that an action God is taking to cause an outcome that wouldn't happen naturally? If God is not intervening, interceding there, would there be enmity between the, the, the human race and Satan, or would there be perfect confederacy and harmony in rebellion? So one place God intercedes is in the hearts and minds of fallen human beings to give us a conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Conviction that this isn't right and a desire for something better. Because without that, we would have no desire for anything better. So he's interceding in our hearts and minds. Does the scripture teach that God is intervening and interceding with the principalities and powers of darkness, holding at bay? And we have lots of examples. Old Testament, Elisha's praise, eyes are open. We see an angel army holding back evil forces. Uh, We see in the book of Job, well, you've got a hedge of protection around him, holding back intervening evil forces. We have the declarations of the New Testament that we battle against uh, principalities and and powers and high places. And and we see in Revelation chapter 7 that he he has four angels holding back the four winds of strife. God is interceding 
competing with evil on earth, holding, restraining, limiting its influence so that evil can't destroy good. And is there another place God interceded? The most significant of all. After Adam sinned, what is the natural inevitable, without intercession, without intervention, without God acting, what is the natural, inevitable outcome for the human species? They're on a trajectory because their condition is terminal. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, because of Christ, our death in trespasses and sin, that's our, our, our lot, dead in trespasses and sin. Now because of Christ, we who are dead in trespasses and sin might become the righteousness of God. We have a new trajectory. We have a new outcome. He interceded with that, that pathway and opened a new door, a new and living way back into the presence of God. So what is God interceding with? He's interceding with the condition He's interceding with evil forces. He's interceding with rebellion. He's interceding with deviations from his design. He is not interceding with himself. The Spirit is not working to help God with better insight, better understanding, better organization of his thoughts, better realization of his duties, better desire for good, more love, less anger. The Spirit is not working to do that in God's heart. The Spirit is working in each one of us to help us out of the miasma, the pit of sin. First paragraph says, true spirituality and prayer go together. There is no real spiritual life without vigorous prayer. After the need for repentance, perhaps one of the greatest and most urgent needs is a revival of our prayer life. The good news is that even in our prayers, we are not left without the help of the Holy Spirit. Prayer draws us close to God. It lifts us up into his presence. The prayer of faith enables us to live in response to the abundance of God's promises. Our lives are transformed when we claim the blessings of God The blessings God has provided in his word, God is more than able to supply all our needs according to his riches. True prayer and authentic spirituality always have God at the center of our attention, and both are rooted in his written word. First, do we all agree that prayer is essential for our, for developing true spirituality? We agree. Don't we? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. If we're going to experience renewed hearts, uh, uh, ongoing developing relation with God, we need to have that communication, that prayer life. There's no question. But, the sentence, there is no real spiritual life without vigorous prayer. Does that mean that if one practices vigorous prayer, one has true spirituality? Can one practice vigorous prayer and be hardened against God? Were the 450 prophets of Baal whom Elijah confronted at Mount Carmel practicing vigorous prayer? Yeah, more vigorous than most of us. They were actually cutting themselves and bleeding. I mean, this was vigorous prayer. Did they have true spirituality? No. See, it doesn't matter to whom one prays. It's true. I mean, nothing said here is wrong, but if you leave out the element to whom, what God, what God concept are you praying, it makes all the difference. There's many people who pray and they pray and they pray, but they're praying under a burden of a distorted view of God, a legal system. Listen to this out of the Great Controversy, page 583. In rejecting the truth, men reject its author. 
In trampling upon the law of God, they deny the authority of the lawgiver. Now, how might men trample on the law? Would it be trampling on God's law if we replaced design law with imposed law? Would that be a way to trample on it? Yeah. It is easy to make an idol of false doctrines and theories as to fashion an idol of wood and stone. By misrepresenting the attributes of God, Satan leads men to conceive of him in a false character. With many, a philosophical idol is enthroned in the place of Jehovah. While the living God, as he is revealed in his word in Christ and the works of creation, where is he revealed? I love this. In his word, in Christ, who was a living experience of God's word. So we have written word, experience, and nature. Okay. He is revealed in his word, in Christ. So while God, the live, while the living God is revealed in his word, in Christ, and in the works of creation, is worshiped by but a few. Thousands deify nature while they deny the God of nature. Though in a different form, idolatry exists in the Christian world today as verily as it existed among the ancient Israel in the days of Elijah. The God of many professedly wise men, of philosophers, poets, politicians, journalists, the God of polished, fashionable circles, of many colleges and universities, even of some theological institutions, is little better than Baal, the sun god of Phoenicia. Now, I didn't have this in my notes, but I'll just take a little aside really quick. And do you know who Baal was? Let's just review very quick who Baal was, because the Bible tells us that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah must come again. Why must the prophet Elijah come again? Because we're having Baal worship again. What is Baal? Baal was the son of El. The Mesopotamian god Baal was the son of El, as in El Ohim, El Shaddai. We have El, who is the father god. Baal is the son god, S-O-N god, but he was also the S-U-N god. And Jesus in the Bible is referred to the son of righteousness. The, when the son of righteousness dawned, both S-O-N and S-U-N, there's a lot of parallels here. But anyway, Baal is the son of El. He is the god of thunder, the god of lightning, the god of sun, the god of weather, the god who brings the harvest, the god of creation. And Baal, in their pantheon of gods, fought against the Leviathan, the great serpent. He also fought against Mote, the god of death. And in his battle with Mote, the god of death, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the earth. Now, what is wrong with worshiping a God who we conceptualize as the Son of the Father, who is the creator who brings the weather and the the life to us, who battles the great serpent, who dies for us and rises again? What's wrong with worshiping this God? In fact, how many of you are worshiping this God? Well, here's the big difference. Baal required appeasement. You had to influence Baal with sacrifices. And you see, in, in what they were doing, they were cutting themselves and offering sacrifices to get Baal to be gracious. There had to be this payment uh, made to Baal, which is pagan in nature. And so Baal became Zeus to the Greeks, the god of thunder, Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, And Jesus Christ, to the Christian groups who worship a God who requires the blood sacrifice of a human son in order to appease his anger and wrath so he doesn't punish. And that's Baal worship. And that's what Christianity teaches in its penal substitution theology. And that's why this is what is little better than the God Baal. And that's where we are today. 
And that's why the prophet Elijah must come to call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the men that is. We worship designer God, not imperial dictator. So what if one has a vigorous prayer life to a God who possesses the attributes of Satan? Will such a prayer life help their spirituality? Prayer is essential, but what is more essential is that the one we pray to holds the character that Jesus revealed God to possess. The last paragraph states, we should not be basing our spiritual life on our unsteady experience and subjective feelings, nor focusing our prayers on suspect contemplative and meditative practices. What are they saying? Are they saying we should not pray? Pardon? Be reasonable. Yeah, are they saying we should not pray when we're emotional? Or are they saying we should not allow our emotions to be the answers to our prayers? In other words, I have this deep emotion on this, therefore that must be God's answer telling me what to do. I think it's absolutely very biblical to pray when emotional. Look at Jesus in Gethsemane. He was deeply emotional. And he prayed, but he did not allow his emotions to be the answer to the prayer. In fact, he went with the evidence and truth of his father's will against his emotions. Yes. I think they're speaking probably specifically against mysticism and the Eastern religions and some of the other influences in our current society. Yes, they are also in the second half speaking against those types of meditative practices. So, first and foremost, we want biblical prayer, not worldly, mystical prayer, correct? Okay? Biblical prayer, my view, starts with an acknowledgement, or excuse me, starts with an actual knowledge of God. Because prayer is communication. And if you don't know God, you can't communicate with him. You have to know him. So it starts with the knowledge of God. If you don't have a knowledge of God, you don't really have a real prayer life. You have desperate pleas thrown up in the air like somebody who's drowning and there's no boats around, but you're screaming out for help. You're not communicating with anybody in a relationship. You're just screaming for help. People do this in desperation. God in love often listens and intervenes to, to, to throw them a life ring to the purpose of bringing them into a relationship so they can then develop a real prayer life. But it starts with knowing God. So the root... So all is coming back to a knowledge of God, which enlightens us to his character, methods, and principles. And when this happens, these ideas of these different types of prayer, meditative practices become clarified, for instance. And we're asking the question, what does it say about God? What kind of God would, what kind of God would want repetitive mantras that shut down thinking? What kind of God would want that? Would a God of truth want people to limit their growth in truth? Would, a, would it be a God who had no truth? Would a God who felt, built his kingdom upon lies and deception want people engaging and thinking and looking for truth? Or would he want people to have a spiritual life that shuts down the mind and shuts down thinking? See, you, you can actually ask these questions. Well, if this were the practices, what kind of God would want that? Next one. What kind of God would want followers to empty their minds and not actually have a interpersonal relationship with him, which some of these practices do. These are mind-emptying, not a personal connection and relationship. Would it be a God that if we actually met him and got to know him, we would dislike him and not trust him? 
You see, life eternal in John 17, 3 is that they might know you. See, when you come to actually meet God as Jesus revealed him to be, you are one. Your heart is overwhelmed with awe and gratitude and love and adoration and he's beautiful and you want more of him. But what do you think would happen if somebody who was worshiping Satan actually saw him for what he is? Do you think there's admiration and love or fear and dislike if you got to see him for real? Okay? So who? what kind of a God wants people to have meditative practices that put barriers to interpersonal connection? The emptying and thoughtlessness of mantras and mindlessness. What about a God who would require prayer to him in order to influence him to be merciful? Would it be a God who had love in their hearts to start with or one who did not? You see, you can actually ask, wow, yeah, those methods don't actually lead me back to a knowledge of God. They're actually sustaining this idea that God's like Satan makes him out to be. How about this one? What kind of God would have prayer be a form, a ritual, a legal checkbox activity that one is required to do in order to get blessed? Say this prayer every day for 30 days and then your, your field will be expanded. Very popular concept. Book sold 12, 15 million copies that promoted this idea. Would it be a God that was concerned with the actual condition of his children or one more concerned with holding up rules? But what kind of a God would have prayer function as communication between God and humans to open up the human mind and the heart to his presence in order to heal, restore, recreate, enlighten, renew his beings back into unity with him? It, 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 if you understand what real prayer is and you compare it to the other two, you can actually see there's actually two different gods behind these two methods. They lead two different places. But it takes a different order of thinking. There's a lot of arguments in the Christian world right now over these contemplative and meditative practices. But I've never heard the argument based on this criterion. What does it say about God? Have you heard that? How does love function? Can love be forced, coerced, commanded, achieved by edict, directive, hierarchical command? Can it? Love is only achieved by the free exercise of the intelligent individual. Thus, prayer, actually talking with God, is part of God's design for his free beings to freely choose to enter into a relationship with him for their healing and growth. It can't be any other way. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, even though clothed in pious cloaks, many prayers are guided by questionable motives. We might pray that someone's life be spared because we don't want, we don't like living alone. We might pray for the success of God's work because we are playing an important role in it. We might pray for the conversion of a person because then our life will be easier or we might get credit and a bonus at the conference office for bringing in more than anybody else in the, in the uh, evangelism drive. Often our prayers center more on what we want rather than on what God wants. Prayer that is pleasing to God has a different focus. What were the motives of each of these as described here? Yeah, they clearly were. Uh, on the other hand, could, could one pray for all these same things with a different motive? Yeah, so it wasn't about the specific things being prayed for. This is very important because it's a lesson. This, this helps expose 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's always about the issue of heart. Yes. Um, I was, I'm tying it in to what you said about how we view God as a veil God. Because if we're viewing God as a veil God, we're going to pray to him like to fix our situation. Like how veil would bring a harvest or bring rain. And so we're praying for God. Okay, can you fix my situation? Can you keep this person in my life so I won't be alone? Instead of how is God actually, what then if we change our view of God, our prayer is changed. We're not viewing him as a male God anymore to appease us. Brilliant. Brilliant. So instead of going to God saying, okay, I've laid out this agenda, God. Now, here's what I want not to happen. I need this. I need that. I need the other thing. Uh, it's like going to Walmart and saying, I need all these things to build this, God. I need all these things. And now you provide it for me, and I'm going to go down this plan. This is often how people, it's rather to say, Lord, what is your plan, and how can I fit in it? That's a different, different orientation. Following the rules so I can appease him to fix my temptations. Yeah, that, that's true, too. If I keep all the rules then bad stuff's not supposed to happen. This is why a lot of people collapse in their Christian journey because they've always paid tithe. They've never eaten a piece of meat. They've been vegetarian their whole life. They go to church on the right day every week and the TV's always off at least an hour before sunset and they have their bath even before sunset because they don't want to take a bath on Sabbath. Okay? And, 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 okay? And, and when, they go, when they go out in a nature walk, the water never gets above the knee. It's always below the knee. Okay? I mean, they've kept all the rules, but something goes wrong and it doesn't work out. And they go, how can this be? I did all the things and God didn't bless me and they get mad at him. Third paragraph states, prayer does not change God, it changes us because we are brought into a life-changing presence of God. Absolutely. There's, let's, let's just talk about it. Yes, I think we all agree that the character of God is not changed by our prayers. And that, in fact, a prayer life is part of what brings us into his presence and helps God change us. There's, there's absolutely true. However, even though God's character does not change, does God ever change what he states he wants based on our prayers? In other words, if we pray long enough, can we get God to agree to do what we want, even though he said he didn't want to do it? Yeah. Well, yes. Moses, when God is going to destroy the people... Okay, Balaam's a good example. Balaam says, can I curse God? No. Can I curse him, God? No. Can I curse Okay, go ahead. How about the quail in the wilderness? The quail in the wilderness. How about the kings to rule over? How about fighting to, to conquer the promised land? Okay, all of these. Now, can we persist in prayer? long enough asking God for things that God does not want us to actually experience, that we persist long enough, God finally says, okay. Does that mean that we are blessed by God in doing it? Does that mean it's, it's God's purpose for us to do it? Why would God give us permission if he's told us not to? Why would he participate and help us? Yes? On the same line as the demons going into the pigs, they prayed to God. Yep, they sure did. They asked and we're going to come to that one. That's a good example for one of our other points in the lesson. Uh, that, uh, that, so we'll come back to that one. It's in the lesson. It's in the notes. But that's a, exactly a good example. But listen to this out of um, Review and Herald, July 27, 1886. Those who are desirous to follow a course which pleases their fancy are in danger of being left to follow their own inclinations, supposing them to be the leadings of God's spirit. Some have their duty indicated by circumstances and facts sufficiently clear 
This is circumstances and facts. That means there's a certain design, a certain reality of how God's constructed life to work. It's so self-evident that this is the healthy course. This is the direction one should go, okay? But ha- have, through the solicitation of friends and harmony with their own inclinations, been swerved from the path of duty and passed over the clear evidences in the case. If you're going to actually use evidences that require you have to think. Yes, it does. You have to reason. You have to examine the evidence. Uh, I had somebody in my office this week who talked about some of these things. They say, you know, why can't you just tell me the answer? <laughs> Seriously, I had somebody in my office this week, and they, were, and they were very, very distraught as I was helping them try to reason through the things. Why can't you just tell me the answer? So if you're trying to learn math, it's a good metaphor. You're trying to learn math. And you're struggling. The symbols are hard to understand because in mathematics, there's all types of you know symbolic representations and formulas that are represented by different things, and and uh, and, and and it's hard. You don't understand. You're, you're trying, but you don't. And you go to the teacher. Can't you just give me the answers? Can't you just tell me? Here, here's there's 27 questions. The 20, no, tw- no, it's 28. They've added one. It's 28 questions. Okay, 28 fundamental questions we have to know. Can't you just tell me the answers? And you memorize all 28, and now you know. And you got the right answers for all those problems. Do you actually have any clue about why, about how? Can you actually solve a problem? When a life problem presents it to you, can you solve it? No. You are helpless and powerless. You need somebody at your side to tell you whether a friend or foe is approaching because you can't tell the difference between a good person and a bad person. Somebody on Satan's side and somebody on God's side. You have no idea because it's not on the list. Okay? The only way for you to become a thinker, a reasoner, a problem solver is for you to work the problems. This is why these things are presented this way in Scripture. This is why it says in Hebrews 5, the mature are those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. So the teachers will show you how to solve problems, but then you can't just memorize the answer. You've got to actually work through the problem and then start solving some for yourself, thinking it out, studying it out. So, back to this. They have earnest... Okay, let's see... Uh, going over the clear evidence in the case, uh, pass over the clear evidence in the case. And with apparent conscientiousness, they have prayed long and earnestly for light. They have earnest feeling in the matter, and they interpret this to be the Spirit of God, but they have been deceived. This course has grieved the Spirit of God. Why? Because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And they're ignoring evidence, which is another word for truth. And they're going with feelings, and feelings lead us in temptation, James chapter 1. So they're grieving the spirit of truth, going with their feelings. Keep going. They had light, and in the very reason of things, very reason, 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 of things, should have understood their duty. But a few pleasing inducements balance their mind in the wrong direction, and they urge these before the Lord and press their case. And the Lord allows them to have their own way. They have so strong an inclination to follow their own course that God permits them to do so and to suffer the results. These imagine they have a wonderful experience. Man, yes. It goes back to the imposed law and natural law. He lets them go ahead, but does he change the rules? He doesn't change. Rules, maybe. Design laws, no. Does he change the laws? No. No, he doesn't change the laws. He did change some rules, though. He gave them new rules on how to prepare meat when he didn't want them to eat meat. Those rules didn't exist, and he changed the rules. Gave them manna. Now they want to eat meat. Okay, prepare it this way, cook it that, don't eat those animals, eat this animal. All a lot of new rules. Laws of health didn't change. I'm just parsing your language a little bit, but you're exactly right. 
So what's transpiring in this passage? Why does God allow them to have their own way? Why doesn't God use power to stop them? What would happen if God did? Do you understand how salvation actually works? How God actually saves a soul and keeps that individual identity intact and doesn't destroy that individual? He doesn't use coercion. Do you understand it requires the free will, active, volitional participation of the individual soul? Every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans chapter 14. God has power to instantly boom, overwrite your individuality and establish a new parameters of thinking inside you. But if he did that, you, the individual who you are, don't exist anymore. You've just been erased. Monday's lesson. First paragraph. Asking reveals our desire and expresses our trust in God. Though pray, uh, Through prayer, we approach him from whom we seek support and help. When we ask God... We go publicly, we also publicly give him permission to become active in our behalf. God wants to be asked. He desires that we bring to him our prayer request. If we do not ask him, we will not receive the gifts he has promised. Jesus said, ask and will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and who knocks, it will be opened. Does the act of asking God mean, as the lesson suggests, that we trust him? And this is where we come to what Wendell said a moment ago. Did the demons ask God to go into the swine? Did that mean they trusted him? No. Many people ask God for things that don't trust him. All the time. Asking doesn't mean we trust. Asking means frequently we're desperate. The the, the demons were desperate. How many human beings find themselves in a desperate situation and then they ask God for something? That's not trust, is it? Now, it certainly can be that we go to God in trust and ask. That certainly can be. But just because someone asks God is not prima facie evidence that they're trusting him. If God knows that all, everything already and already knows all of our needs, why do we need to ask? Is there something that we need that we need, that we cannot receive from God without asking. Can you think of something that we need that we cannot receive from him, even though he longs to pour it out, longs to give it to us, but we cannot receive it if we don't ask? Is there something like that? The Holy Spirit changed heart. Why can we not receive the changed heart without asking? Why? Is there a reason? Because God God says, look, I'd love to change your heart, but until you ask... (laughs) You know, you got to ask me. I'm not willing. What? Yes, I love this. Exactly right. We need consent. We're free will. What would happen if... Now, does God have the power to violate somebody's will? Yes. Yeah. What would happen if he did? Say that again. This is exactly right. You would be a robot. Can robots love? Can robots give loyalty? Can lo- robots give devotion? No, they can be reliable. You can program a robot to be reliable, predictable, to function within its parameters over and over again. But you cannot get devotion. You cannot get trust. You cannot get love. You cannot get loyalty. You cannot get that from a robot. And individuality is destroyed if he were to write. Yes, so what God wants for us and what we need, we must ask for. We have to willingly ask and to participate. Yes? If I'm praying according to the Bible that... 
God give me the desires of my heart. But if I close my prayer with not my will, but thy will be done, would that erase the desires of my heart? Well, see, that's an interesting question. It depends, I guess, where you are on the journey. Because as I understand it, when we actually get a new heart and right spirit, we're reborn in the inner man, we get the mind of Christ, we have the law written on the hearts and minds, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, and so on and so on and so on, then the desires of our hearts actually become the desires that God would have us have. And we do get those because we desire what he wants. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So if we go with the desires of our hearts without conversion, and we're just selfish and we're seeking to use God as, uh, as uh, may, many pagan religions do, to get what we want, then we don't necessarily. So I think this is, this is a very interesting question. Second paragraph, and I think we're going to unpack this here in just a moment further. Second paragraph says, um, let's see, where are we? We truly can ask God for anything. No request is too small or unimportant for him. No request is so big that God cannot handle it. He is omnipotent. By faith we may claim every promise in the Bible and receive the promised gifts from his hands according to his will. Pray for anything. What about asking God to kill somebody for you? Or helping you go kill somebody. God, I'm going to go kill this person. Will you help me? Did Joshua ask the sun to stand still so he could do more killing? Yes. Did God answer his prayer and hold the sun still so he could do more killing? Hmm, that's very interesting. Yes? We have a question online. It says, so the question arises, why? Why do some respond to the Spirit in a positive way and some respond in a negative way? He gave an example of twins that can respond in totally different ways. We were both raised in love in the same way by the same parents. Interesting concept. And then he also asks, why a judgment event? What is the difference uh, in the judgment that enlightens everyone to now bow and confess that Jesus is Lord when they couldn't be convinced of this while on earth? Okay, two separate issues. The first is why do some respond differently? Okay. So let me ask you this. If you had a Norwegian and a Nigerian both standing side by side in the hot summer heat in Miami at noon on July, does the sun treat them differently? No. No. The sun doesn't treat them. The sun does not treat them differently. Do they respond differently to the sun? Why? Is that fair? How fair is that? This is the answer to the first question. Why do some respond differently? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. Shines truth and love, 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 truth and love. The condition of the individual minds and hearts determine the responses, not the spirit. Okay? People respond differently. God's laws are design laws and they are constants. They never change. But our condition causes us to have different experiences when we interface with those laws, including like the sunshine. Because we have different tolerances, different melanin in our, in our, um, in our skin. We will respond differently to UV radiation. Okay? But the sun doesn't do anything different. The sun does the exact same thing. But it's interesting. It's a very fun question to ask because it will, I, I ask this question at different church groups and it's, and typically the average church group, well more than half of them answer yes, the sun treats them differently. And that's because they're still thinking through imposed law. The sun is doing it to them. 
See, this is also comes through in our modern society today when individuals have no personal responsibility. The government's doing it to them. Some other organization. It's not my fault. I have no accountability. Everyone else is responsible. Okay? Rather than actually seeing design law stuff that, hey, you know what? The laws are constants. If uh, it doesn't matter your religion, it doesn't matter your race, if, if you have people of different religion and different race all stand side by side and jump off the Empire State Building, gravity treats them all exactly the same. It doesn't, doesn't distinguish. Okay. So, and then the second question was about... Um, Why a judgment event? What is that? What is oh, the, the knee bowing at, at judgment. This is not a confession. This is not an acknowledgement. This is the weight of evidence that they can no longer deny. They're finally in the unveiled truth. And the evidence is so overwhelming. They, they acknowledge the evidence of their own history and the evidence of God's graciousness. It is not a conversion that they love him and they've come one to trust. It's simply that the, the lies have been exposed. And it was kind of like we had something similar play out in our country about a decade and a half ago when a person got up and said, I did not have relations with that woman. And then a dress was brought forth and DNA evidence came out and he got on TV and acknowledged that in fact he did. Okay? This was not a confession. This was not a repentance. This was simply the acknowledgement of the weight of evidence. The weight of evidence demanded the acknowledgement. That's all. And that's what's happening in the end. I hope I didn't offend anyone with that example. (laughs) So, You look at why was God helping them kill Joshua and so forth and so on. What was God's plan? God had a plan, and he told them about it. I'm going to send the hornet, I'm going to send the pestilence, and had little by little as they move out of the land, you'll take over. There's going to be no fighting, no conflict, no killing. It'll be a very peaceful transition over a course of maybe a century or more, and uh, we won't have all this fighting. First, First thought. Second, who were the ones that eventually were being killed by the Israelites? Who were these people? in the context of the great controversy, were these people who were responding positively to the Spirit of God, having their hearts transformed, wanting to be on God's team, wanting to assist in his plan to become priests and ministers to the world, or were these people actually responding to a different spirit, and that spirit, the spirit of Satan, was actually working to try to shut down the avenue through which Messiah was going to come, trying to kill Israel so that this plan of, the, of salvation would be, would be aborted. Do you see that happening in this time as well? Now, what would have happened to anybody in any of those other nations if they responded to the Spirit of God and actually aligned themselves in heart with God's people? What would have happened? Do we have an example with Rahab? Here's Rahab. She aligned with the people of God. And what happened? What would have happened if the whole city of Jericho took the same attitude that Rahab had? What do you think would have happened? Same thing that happened to Nineveh, same thing that happened to Rahab. They haven't become part of the people of God. When the people came out of Israel, was it only descendants of, uh, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that came out? Or was there a mixed multitude? A whole bunch of Egyptians came out. Yes, God was not a racist and an exclusivist, and it was all racial and racist thing going on. It's all about character. He is trying to work out a plan to heal the whole species human because the whole species human is terminal. We're infected with a condition that if, it, if, the, if the Messiah doesn't come, all human beings will be lost for all eternity. This is the context. We miss it sometimes. And so Satan is actually working. That's his agenda. He does not want any human being to be saved. He wants to kill them all. And, and the plan now, God has revealed to Abraham uh, uh, that he is going to work through the descendants of Abraham to bring the seed that will be the Messiah that will redeem. And so Satan is working with the nations to crush Israel. 
God had a plan there. So if God's plan was followed, even so, they would have not had to fight. They would have just, the conditions would have been such those people have voluntarily moved out. But the Israelites, former slaves, uh, dominated for, for centuries, abused, mistreated, feeling weak and disempowered. They want to become powerful. They want to become strong. They want to exercise their might. The God, they, have, they finally have the God of gods on their side who just whipped the strongest nation in the world on their behalf. And they're going to go out and they're going to show their might. We're going to war. It wasn't God's plan. But what do we just read? If we insist on going a certain way, what does God do? He lets us go. And so God said, okay, if you're going to say, now, now you can answer the question, because people, critics of Scripture will come to you and say, God was a, um, what, what, uh, a bloodthirsty, but I'm looking for um, um, genocidal. genocidal, thank you. God was genocidal. He wanted to just, he, he ordered them just to kill all this entire race of people. Okay, it wasn't his plan. They insist on going to war. And so what does God do? Does God want as much bloodshed as possible or as little as possible? Does he want, when people kill other people, do you understand it goes against God's design for you to kill another human being? There's an inbred natural reluctance for normal people who are not psychotic or somehow mentally defective to kill another person. It, it, there's a reluctance to do so. And when you do, there's a damage that occurs. That's why soldiers get PTSD. PTSD is the normal reaction to the abnormal circumstance of humans killing humans. Okay? And so do you think God wants lots of people scarred with PTSD? Lots of murder and killing going on for a century and millennia after... No. He says, okay, since you're going to go down this path, then do it in one generation. Wipe them out, all of them, all who won't convert and become part of Israel, kill them all, so that we in one generation will numerically kill the least numbers of people, and we will have the least numbers of people scarred with the traumas of war. Only one generation will have to deal with that. But they didn't do that either, and so we still, what, 3,000 years later, are still having fighting in the Middle East. So it wasn't a bloodthirsty God, it was just the opposite of that, minimizing the, the, the bloodshed. Yes? Is there a scriptural reference for where the Israelites said, we, we want to go to war... I found God telling them, I'll send the hornet and the pestilence ahead of you. And I've also seen where he said, you know, wipe out every living thing. But I haven't, I haven't found in scripture the, where the Israelites said, we want to go to war. Now, I wouldn't conclude from the, from yeah, the, I think it's, that's this, what is implied. I, I don't find a statement where the, I, I don't know of a statement where the Israelites are recorded as having said that. We just see it by their repetitive actions over and over again. Right. Okay. okay. Kind of like they did an AI. They wanted their king to yeah. Okay, thanks. So, what about this idea of claiming every Bible promise, as the lesson suggests here? Claiming every Bible promise. And, and, and there's a certain, spiritual, spirit, uh, certain religious approach that really values the promises, and they approach God as the great vending machine in the sky. And you only have to find and hunt up the right Bible promise. And when you find the right Bible promise, you get to read that, Make sure it's in the King James English, of course. Because if it's not in the King James, God doesn't have to respond. He only responds to King James English. And you read that promise in the King James English, and God is obliged to give you what you're asking for if you find the right promise for your need. The, the promises become the coin that goes in the heavenly vending machine. Have you ever had this kind? Now, I'm, I'm saying it very, um, I think, offensively. But this is functionally how it was presented to me when I grew up in the church. 
Uh, the whole Bible promise book came out, and everyone was excited. We got all the promises codified here. We just find our right promise. We get to pray it, claim it, and we get it. Did you ever have that kind of approach? Yes. It's not biblical. It's not what the Bible promises mean. And when you approach it like that, and you claim the promise, and you pray really, really hard, and you pray it, and you, and you, and you use the right King James English, you haven't used the NIV or one of those other ones, those, those, those newfangled things. Okay? Yeah. Uh, and then you don't get what you asked for. Then what happens? Then you lose faith. God doesn't care about me. God, God, he's not real. I've been lied to. I, I don't have enough faith. There must be some sin in my life I haven't found yet. I've got to find the sin and get that sin out of my life. I knew I shouldn't eat that cheese last week. It was the cheese I ate. That's why I didn't get it. <laughs> this is exactly how many Christians function. It's torture. There's no joy in this. Last paragraph. Yes. Elijah was taken to heaven. But Elisha, who had twice the spirit of God in him, died a lingering death. Good point. Brilliant point. All right, so let's, let's, let, I think we probably end up closing on this paragraph because we're running out of time. It says, uh, yet there are some conditions to be met in order to receive what we are asking. If we are not willing to submit fully to God, and if our requests reflect only our selfish and sinful desires, God will not answer our prayers. An important condition, now, for the fulfillment of prayer is our willingness to follow God's will and to be obedient. Now, here comes now a white quote in the middle of the paragraph from Christ's Object Lessons. All God's gifts are promised on condition of obedience, end quote. Knowing that God is generous, we can come boldly to him. Okay, so a couple of things. Does the statement, all God's gifts are promised on the condition of obedience, which is from the quarterly, mean the same thing, I mean, which is, um, which is from Ellen White, mean the same thing that if we pray selfishly, God will not answer our prayer? Are those the same? Are those synonyms? Hmm. Is it possible, even likely, that if we pray selfishly, God may in fact answer our prayer, but we will not receive God's gift? Did I confuse you with that? Remember this thing. It says all God's gifts are promised on the condition of obedience. The lesson says if we pray selfishly, we won't get, he won't answer our prayer. I'm suggesting if you pray selfishly, he will often answer your prayer and you won't get his gift. What do I mean? Am I confusing you? How does that work? Did Israel pray selfishly when they asked for quail? Did they? Did God answer their prayer? Did they receive his gift? No, his gift was the gift of manna and better health. And instead, they got what they wanted, and many of them died. Israel prayed for kings. Did God answer their prayer and choose their first two? Did they receive his gift? No. They lost the gift of God leading them directly and further lost their wealth and taxes, their sons in military service, their daughters in harems, and eventually lost their freedoms as well as they were conquered by other nations. They got what they asked for, but they did not get his gifts. This is profound. They said it would be better if we had died in the desert. Yes. So God allowed that. God said, okay, give my gift to the promised land. That's right. There you go again. He gave them what they wanted. They got what they asked for, but they didn't get the gift. This is profound. Think about this in your prayer life. This goes back to that statement. They pray long and hard, and they think they have a wonderful experience. Quail, we've got a wonderful experience. And how many died that day? Yeah. 
They didn't get the gift. Why would God answer such prayer? What's his alternative? God wants to stay connected. He knows we are dying, and only in connection with him is there any hope of salvation. And sometimes people become so rebellious in demanding something selfish that they want that God has a choice to say, okay, I'll let you have it and stay with you while you suffer, and I'll help you pick up the pieces and learn some lessons, or sever the connection completely. And so God lets them have what they want. He doesn't want them to suffer. He doesn't want to inflict pain on them. But they do because they're choosing something out of harmony. And then God is there to help them learn from life experiences and hopefully repent and come to a new way. The prodigal son story is another one. The prodigal asked for his inheritance. And he was given his inheritance. And he went out into wild living. And he ended up in a very devastated life. He got what he asked for, but he did not get the gift until he repented and came home. And then he had the gift, not just of restored authority in the, in the, in the state, but the gift of the father's presence, the gift of the experience and the relationship with his dad. I mean, this is the gift to come into unity with our heavenly father and spend time with him. Any comments or questions? Anything from the lesson that we didn't go over, you want to go over? Okay, so we'll close on this then. The lesson asks us to read James 1, 6-8 about the wavering. And I'll read it to you from the NIV, and then I'll read it to you from the remedy, this idea uh, about the double-minded man and so forth. So here's the NIV. Uh, this is James 1, 6-8. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of a sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And this is from the remedy. But when you ask, ask with the sure and confident knowledge that he longs to give you what you ask. Do not waver back and forth in fear and uncertainty like a fishing bobber tossed on the ocean waves. For your fear will obstruct your ability to receive what he longs to give you. Those consumed by fear will not think they can receive anything from the Lord. They are unstable, controlled by emotions, and can't make up their minds about anything. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you, your son and your spirit have been working together for all eternity and ever since man fell into sin to heal and restore, interceding with the principalities and powers of darkness, interceding with our hearts and minds to long and to, to uh, give uh, good desires and to draw us back to you and, and through Jesus Christ interceding with the destructiveness of what sin would have done to the human race and, and open the, the new and living way back into a relationship and eternal life with you. We ask that your spirit now will take Christ's achievements and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer that we live, but Christ lives in us. We pray in our holy name. In your holy name, amen.